Welcome back to Read Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WF and PLP Louisville. Reviewing historian W. Caleb McDaniel's 2020 Pulitzer Prize winning text, Sweet Taste of Liberty, today, about the touchiest subject on the American political landscape, reparations. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to episode 13 of Read and Succeed, and thank you for joining us. We are capping off what is essentially a three-episode series on race relations in and around Louisville following the September 23rd Breonna Taylor verdict. Episode 11 was a very moving conversation with 26th Poet Laureate of Kentucky, Dr. Frank X. Walker, immediately following the verdict, discussing his poetry about the first black Louisvillian. Captain William Clark of the 1804-1806 Lewis and Clark Expeditions enslaved black manservant York and social reflections about the black experience in Louisville past and present. That was followed in episode 12 by hard talk with Dean of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Jefferson Community and Technical College, Mr. Chip Thomas, about the 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, by sociologist Matthew Desmond, and the even harder realities that race has played in the socioeconomics of housing security, or the lack thereof. Episode 13 completes these conversations by reviewing Associate Professor of History at Rice University, W. Caleb McDaniel's 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for History, Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America, published by Oxford University Press. Sweet Taste of Liberty tells the true story of Miss Henrietta Wood, an enslaved black woman born to enslaved parents on the Kentucky side of the greater Cincinnati area around 1819, brought to Louisville and sold down the river to New Orleans as a teenager where she labored in the domestic sphere before being returned to the greater Cincinnati area, this time to the non-slaveholding state of Ohio side, in 1848 where she was then freed by her former owner's sister at around the age of 30 and got her first quote-unquote sweet taste of liberty. Four years later, in 1852, however, her liberty and her dignity were again violated, as locals, driven by their own debts, conspired to have Henrietta kidnapped, transported back to the Kentucky side of the Ohio River near Cincinnati, and sold back into slavery for profit, a plan executed in person by no less than a deputy sheriff in Covington, Kentucky, and later Kentucky State Legislator, manager of the Kentucky State Penitentiary, for sales area horse baron, and absolute monster of a human being, Mr. Zebulon Ward. Miss Wood now surfaces in Natchez, Mississippi in 1855 on the American slave system's most brutal of all end locations, a cotton plantation, and laboring in both the plantation house and the cotton field themselves, all under the ownership of Mr. Gerard Brandon, a former governor's son. 
Even with slavery being abolished via the 13th Amendment and the Civil War ending both in the first half of 1865, Henrietta remains enslaved until 1869, not uncommon in that area, after being marched nearly 400 miles to Texas, along with 800 others, by Mr. Brandon to avoid being liberated by the Union Army. Miss Wood returns to the greater Cincinnati area, again via Louisville in 1870, with a young son now in tow, 17 years after she was originally kidnapped, and does what all free American citizens have the right to do, sue. In this case, Mr. Zebulon Ward, for kidnapping her and selling her back into slavery in the first place. Shockingly, against all precedent at the time, be it legal or social or economic, an all-white jury deciding Wood v. Ward in 1878 sides with Miss Wood forcing Mr. Ward to pay Henrietta $2,500, that's around 65000 today, and about 10% of what her lawyers originally requested. Mr. Zebulon Ward begrudgingly signs the check, and Miss Henrietta Wood, now running a laundry service in Chicago, Illinois, becomes the recipient of the largest slave reparation ever paid in U.S. history. Mr. Ward dies in obscurity, and Miss Wood uses her restitution to help send her son to law school and build a better future for himself. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This next clip I'm going to play is a lecture that Dr. McDaniel himself gave on the text at none other than the Filson Historical Society here in Louisville in early February of this year. Excellent lecture and sincere thanks to the Filson for allowing us to broadcast this content. Learn more about the Filson Historical Society at filsonhistorical.org. Learn more about Dr. McDaniel at history.rice.edu. Learn more about Read and Succeed at readandsucceed.net. Visit our social media sites and enjoy this interview. Good evening. My name is Patrick Lewis, and I'm the scholar-in-residence here at the Filson. We're very glad that you all were able to join us tonight. It's my pleasure tonight to introduce W. Caleb McDaniel, author of Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America. Dr. McDaniel is an associate professor of history at Rice University, where he also serves as Magister of Duncan College. His first book, The Problem of Democracy in the Age of Slavery, won the Merle Curdy Prize from the Organization of American Historians and the James Broussard Prize from the Society of Historians of the Early American Republic. In addition to numerous articles about the history of slavery, anti-slavery, and emancipation in the 19th century, he has written essays that have appeared in the New York Times, Smithsonian's Magazine, The Atlantic, and Time. Please join me in welcoming Kayla McDaniel. Thank you, Patrick, and thanks to all of you for being here tonight. I'm delighted to be here at the Filson. It's been several years since I was here doing research, and a lot has changed. This building was not here, and it's really great to see how the Society's campus has grown. I'm looking forward to sharing with you tonight some of the finds that were made actually here at the Filson that supported the story that I tell in my book, Sweet Taste of Liberty. Before I talk about the story of that book, though, I wanted to begin by discussing another project that was actually published just about a month before my book came out in September of last year, the 1619 Project, released by the New York Times that you may be familiar with. An issue of the New York Times Magazine, as well as a special insert section, the 1619 Project was packed with articles by journalists, sociologists, historians to mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in British North America. The aim of the project was both to publicize and tell that history, but also to reflect on 
the long legacies of slavery in American life up into the present. And so perhaps not surprisingly, it attracted criticism from Americans who still resist the conclusion that slavery did have a long-lasting impact on our national life. But in recent months, it's also attracted some criticism maybe from a less likely quarter, about uh, five or six leading historians of the American Civil War era actually wrote a letter to the New York Times critiquing the 1619 Project, and particularly a lead essay in the magazine. And they took issue with three claims in particular, one that slavery and the defense of slavery was one of the primary reasons for American independence, also that Abraham Lincoln was not a supporter of racial equality, and also the claim that African Americans have largely fought the struggle for their freedom alone. So these historians wrote into the New York Times Magazine taking issue with those claims and actually arguing that the New York Times should issue a correction. They said that these errors which concern major events cannot be described as interpretation or framing, but instead are matters of verifiable fact. One of the historians who signed that letter, Sean Wilentz, later doubled down on that argument in the Atlantic Magazine when he argued that the 1619 Project was undermined by some of its claims, which again, he called a matter of facts. Now, I bring this controversy up, not to go into it to great detail, because I'm not here primarily to talk about the 1619 Project. I'd encourage you to read about the debate, but I do want to make clear that these criticisms that have been leveled at the project do not speak for all historians of the 19th century. And in fact, there's been lively debate among historians about the project. And while the biggest headlines have been devoted to the critics of the project, many historians have vouched for the project. And many of those who defend the 1619 project have especially contested the claim that these disagreements about the project are a matter of facts. Because in fact, I think, they are all about interpretation. And the debate about the 1619 Project has brought into public view a debate that's been going on among scholars of the Civil War era now for a generation, if not more, about how to understand the significance of the Civil War and the coming of emancipation. In the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement and up into the 1980s, there was a dramatic transformation in the way that historians understood slavery and emancipation. And the theme of this revolution in scholarship was that the most significant thing about the Civil War was the fact that it brought about the destruction of slavery. And so in multi-volume series like the Southern Society and Freedmen's Project at the University of Maryland published in the Freedom volumes, Free at Last, you could see an interpretation of the Civil War that emphasized the coming of freedom as not just the most significant outcome of the Civil War, but an organizing theme in African American history in particular and American history in general. In fact, some historians refer to this historiographical sea change from the 1970s to the 1980s as the freedom narrative. And you can see that narrative exemplified in textbooks like the one written by John Hope Franklin, From Slavery to Freedom. So the freedom narrative idea was that that's the way that we can most accurately capture what happened in the Civil War era, a movement from slavery to freedom. In recent years, though, there's been, as there often is in historiography, a kind of swinging of the pendulum of historians starting to 
rethink the freedom narrative and to point out not ways that it's wrong, but the things that it leaves out or the things that it obscures. And a lot of these books can be seen in this stack of recent publications. The theme of a lot of this recent scholarship is just to point out that the movement from slavery to freedom did not happen in a moment or with a single event. It wasn't a light switch moment where there was slavery and then suddenly there was freedom. But instead, the coming of freedom was a process, often a chaotic and uneven process, experienced differently by different actors in that process in different places in the country and at different moments in time. And so you can see in prize-winning books like Edward Ayer's The Thin Light of Freedom or Stephen Kantrowitz's book More Than Freedom, which argues that black abolitionists after the Civil War had to continue to struggle against unequal civil rights and racist policies even in the Civil War era North, that they were fighting for more than freedom, You can see an anthology there on the left, Beyond Freedom, which collects some essays that challenge the idea that freedom was a simple uh, outcome of the Civil War. Or Chandra Manning's book, Troubled Refuge, Struggling for Freedom in the Civil War, I think is also exemplary of this trend. The title that I think captures this rethinking of the freedom narrative best is a book that just came out last year and won pretty much every conceivable book prize for Civil War historians embattled freedom by Amy Murrell Taylor, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. And Dr. Taylor's argument emphasized freedom as an outcome of the Civil War, but also pointed out the embattled nature of the coming of freedom. And certainly, if you know what the image on that book is depicting, it wouldn't surprise you why she comes to that conclusion, because the photograph there in the background is actually the Camp Nelson site here in Kentucky, where during the Civil War, hundreds of African Americans from surrounding counties flocked to Union lines with their families, seeking emancipation, seeking freedom, but then were actually expelled from Camp Nelson during an unseasonable cold snap, like the one that I understand Louisville had last night, and tragically, around 100 African Americans who were expelled from Camp Nelson perished in that cold snap. So one of the things that historians who are writing about the Civil War now are thinking about how to tell a narrative of the Civil War that can, on the one hand, celebrate and mark the emancipation of four million enslaved Americans by the Civil War, but also not forget about the hundred who died in Camp Nelson or the hundreds of others who died in the unsanitary conditions of contraband camps across the American South. How can we reconcile those two stories? So what I've tried to suggest just very briefly is that there's sort of a scholarly debate that's mostly played out behind the scenes and not in the newspapers for a number of years of historians on the one hand emphasizing the coming of freedom in the Civil War and historians on the other hand pointing out the unevenness of emancipation, the things that that freedom narrative, the the tragedies perhaps even, that that freedom narrative obscures. And so what you see, I think, in the 1619 Project is a lot of those interpretive disagreements coming into public view for the first time. In other words, it's not just a matter about verifiable facts, but there's actually a deep interpretive question that's at play in these disagreements. I start with that very long-winded preface because the story that I'd like to talk to you about tonight, which is the subject of my book, Sweet Taste of Liberty, came out about a month after the 1619 Project. And as I've been following these debates, I've been sort of thinking about whether this story 
fits within the sort of classical understanding of the freedom narrative and the Civil War era? Or instead, is this a book that I should place on that stack of recent books that are emphasizing embattled freedom? And that's the question that I'd actually like to pose to you tonight to think about as we work our way through the story that's told in this book. Is this a story that exemplifies the freedom narrative or does it show the embattled coming of freedom uh, during the Civil War era? The book tells the story of Henrietta Wood. The story is actually going to take us to lots of different states ranging over a century. We're going to go from Kentucky and, and even some key events that happened in the story right here in Louisville all the way down to Texas near Houston where I'm from. Because I'm from Texas, by the way, you'll have to excuse me. I'm not from Kentucky, and I understand that you all have some interesting ways of pronouncing certain words and place names. So I know, for example, how to say Versailles, but I may say other words that you could correct me on. If I do that, all y'all will have to forgive me. (laughs) But we're going to begin in Boone County in northern Kentucky around 1818 or 1820, when Henrietta Wood was born on a small farming hamlet that was known at the time as Town, located just across the Ohio River from Lawrenceburg, Indiana. I actually visited there in the course of my research and found the land where Town most likely was located. There's a family cemetery there with members of the Towsey family. And for Wood, this was the place as she grew up where her first memories would have been formed, where the people that she first loved and who told her about the world, her mother Daphne, her father Bill, her brother Joshua, and other siblings lived and labored in bondage to the family of a man named Moses Towsey. Towsey Town was actually just on the, the edge of the Ohio River, and you can see how close the slave state of Kentucky at that time was to the free state of Indiana, a place where slavery had been made illegal at the founding of the state. And that meant that Henrietta Wood, when she was born in 1818 or 1820, if she stood on the banks of the Ohio River as a child, she could literally look across the river at a place where her enslavement would have been prohibited. That's how close slavery and freedom were at this moment and how close Wood was to freedom, even at the moment of her birth. But she didn't remain in Town for long. Because she lived in a slave state and was born to an enslaved woman, she was legally considered the property of Moses Towsey. And in 1834, Moses Towsey died, causing the executors of his estate to draw up an inventory of uh, all of the property he owned, including the people that he enslaved. On that inventory were the names of Henrietta Wood's parents, Bill and Daphne, the name of a brother she later remembered named Joshua. But Henrietta Wood herself did not appear on this inventory list because in 1834, Moses Towsey's children sold Henrietta Wood to a man named Henry Forsyth in Louisville. This was the first of several times that Henrietta Wood would be sold in her life, but it was likely one of the most traumatic sales. It separated her from her family. It also meant that she was now enslaved to a man whom she later remembered as a cruel man who flogged her 
frequently. And she also had to adjust to life in Louisville, which was a very different place in 1834 than the Boone County where she grew up. In fact, in 1830, Louisville was already Kentucky's largest city, and the population actually exceeded that of Boone County as a whole. The reason, of course, for Louisville's spectacular growth had a lot to do with the growth of the cotton economy in the lower Mississippi River Valley, which meant that there was lots of trade happening between Louisville and New Orleans on steamboats uh, during this period. And in fact, Henry Forsyth, the man who purchased Henrietta Wood, was a man who sold cotton on consignment. He also invested in steamboats. You can see here ads that he placed in a Louisville newspaper selling both cotton and tobacco. Forsyth was worth about $20,000 by 1833. Only a few years later, his estate would be valued at over $100,000. He was a director of the Bank of Kentucky. Uh, he was an investor in the company that was chartered to build the original Galt House. So he was a very wealthy and well-connected man in Louisville. But it all went bust in 1837 with a nationwide economic panic. And around that time, Henry Forsyth sold wood again to a French immigrant named William Sorod, who by that time was also a merchant in Louisville. Sorod, who was originally from France, decided in 1837 or 1838 to move with his family down the Mississippi River to New Orleans, and he took Henrietta Wood with him hundreds of miles away from all of the places that she had known. She remembered later being put on the steamboat, the William French, and taken down the Mississippi to New Orleans. So if we've started in Town, but due to two sales that took place before Henrietta Wood was even 20 years of age, she has ended up in the thriving metropolis of New Orleans, the heart of the nation's cotton economy at the time. She lived and worked in William Sorode's house for about six or seven years, the site of the home where she labored and slaved. If you've been to New Orleans, it's actually not far away from Louis Armstrong Park and Congo Square, a, a historically and culturally significant site for the city's African and African-American communities. But just as it had for Forsyth, economic disaster eventually came for William Sorod. And in 1844, fleeing creditors, William Sorod abandoned his family and returned to France, leaving behind with his wife, Jane Sorod, the people that he had enslaved in New Orleans. So in 1844, our story actually returns to Louisville. Jane Sorod, who was from Kentucky, decided to move back to Kentucky, and she brought with her Henrietta Wood. For a time, Wood was actually hired out here in the city. There was a thriving for hire market in Louisville at the time. Enslaved people worked on steamboats uh, along the docks as stevedores and draymen, as waiters in restaurants, as domestic servants in households. And frequently, slave owners would actually rent the labor of the people they owned out to those who perhaps could not afford or uh, did not choose to purchase a person of their own, but instead could benefit from enslaved labor by paying the wages, not to the worker, but instead to the owner of hired out slaves. There were actually agents to arrange these kinds of hires. 
And so for a while, Henrietta Wood worked here for a variety of employers. She later remembered that one of the people who hired her from Jane Sirode was a lawyer named Charles Men Thruston. Perhaps you recognize that name, a very prominent Louisville family that later, of course, uh, one of the descendants of the family would play a crucial role in founding the Filson Historical Society. There were actually multiple Charles Men Thrustons, which threw me for a loop when I was doing my research. This one was actually a lawyer who died in 1854. She also, for a time, was hired out to William Bishop, the operator of the Louisville Hotel, and the hotel's papers are actually also held here at the Filson in its archives. Wood later remembered this second time spent in Louisville. She later remembered being fairly well treated, which probably had a lot to do with the fact that Jane Sirode actually was not living here when she was working here. Jane Sirode actually decided to move to Cincinnati shortly after her return to Kentucky and left Wood behind in Louisville to work so that Sirode could continue to collect money off of her labor. But it meant that Wood had some degree of independence and autonomy at times, perhaps even the ability to negotiate some of her hires, as many enslaved people did in Louisville around that time. There's another reason that she remembered this time in Louisville fondly that I'm not going to tell you because I hope that you'll read the book. But in 1847 or 1848, the story took a fateful turn when Sirode decided to move Henrietta Wood to Cincinnati to work in the boarding house that Jane Sirode had opened there in Cincinnati. Ohio, of course, was a free state, and so the laws of Ohio required that any black newcomer to the state had to be registered as a free person before they could be employed in the city. And so, in fact, that's what Jane Sirode did. In April of 1848, she went to the Hamilton County Courthouse and she registered officially that Henrietta Wood was now a free woman. Wood remembered receiving a copy of the papers that were recorded there in the Hamilton County uh, Courthouse. And she eventually tested the power of those papers by leaving Jane Sirode's employ. And for about five years in Cincinnati, she worked for a variety of other families uh, in Cincinnati, other boarding houses, including one that was operated by uh, the family of an African-American man named Samuel Wilcox, who was one of the nation's first most successful uh, entrepreneurs in Cincinnati. She remembered those few years in Cincinnati later as her sweet taste of liberty. But in 1853 those years came to an end. It was in that year that Wood was lured across the Ohio River in a curtained carriage, kidnapped and re-enslaved in Covington, Kentucky by a deputy sheriff named Zebulon Ward. Within a few days of her capture and re-enslavement, she found herself incarcerated in the slave jail of one of the most notorious Kentucky slave traders in Lexington, a man named Louis Robards. Now, this was obviously a terrifying moment in Wood's story, but I think it's significant that even at this moment of a dramatic turn in her fortunes, Henrietta Wood showed amazing resilience, a theme that would recur throughout the story we're going to see. She was determined not to have her freedom taken away from her without a fight. 
And in fact, uh, within the first hours of her capture, she began to tell her story to anyone who would listen. By telling an innkeeper where she was confined by her kidnappers, she actually set in motion a series of events that led to a lawsuit arguing for her freedom being filed in the Fayette County Courthouse in Lexington. And her case was taken up there by a moderately anti-slavery lawyer named George B. Kincaid, who at the time was actually Abraham Lincoln's uh, attorney in Lexington, had been a secretary of state in Kentucky, and so was a very prominent lawyer in Lexington at the time. He was a colonizationist, which means that although he favored a gradual end to slavery, he also supported the removal of all black Americans from the nation. His vision of the future didn't contain a place for someone like Henrietta Wood. But his belief in colonizationism did lead him to think that anyone who owned slaves should have the power and the right to manumit those people if they chose. And so he may have believed that, you know, if Jane Sirode had manumitted Henrietta Wood in Cincinnati, then the law should show that she was free. One of my most exciting moments in doing the research for this book was actually sitting in the, the reading room here at the Filson. I had come here to look at the family papers of the Bodley family, uh, which is a pro prominent uh, legal family in the 19th century here in Louisville. And there were actually three sisters who married three lawyers. And at this time, George Kincaid was one of them, but uh, two of the, the brother-in-laws were here in, in Louisville. And so Kincaid, in interviewing Wood, had apparently learned at some point that she was hired out for a time here in Louisville to Charles Min Thruston. And so he wrote a letter to his legal relatives to get in touch with Thruston and see what he knew about her story. And he sent a letter in September of 1853 to his brother-in-law. And I think I let out an audible gasp in the reading room when I read the first paragraph of this letter where he said, I think from the testimony of Thruston, I will be able to get proof to sustain Henrietta's claim to freedom. That was Kincaid's hope in September of 1853. But in early 1854, as I mentioned earlier, Thruston died. And his testimony ended up not being as helpful to Kincaid as he had hoped. The lawsuit that Henrietta Wood filed against Zeb Ward in Fayette County, arguing for her freedom, was eventually, in 1854, after a perfunctory trial, dismissed. And Henrietta Wood was ruled to be legally the property of Zebulon Ward. Now, around the same time that Wood loses her lawsuit for her freedom, Zebulon Ward, the man who had kidnapped her, actually had another windfall. He was named in 1854 the next keeper of Kentucky's state penitentiary in Frankfurt. I mentioned earlier that Ward had been a deputy sheriff in Covington at the time of Wood's kidnapping, and he parlayed uh, that experience and some connections and also some underhanded tactics to lead to the dismissal of the man who was then the keeper of the state penitentiary and the appointment of Zebulon Ward in his place. Now, this was a very lucrative job to get at the time because Kentucky actually leased out the prison to the keeper 
who split the proceeds of any products that were made through the labor of the prisoners with the state. So the inside of the Kentucky State Penitentiary at the time actually looked more like a factory. All kinds of things were made inside the walls, furniture, hemp bagging, various kinds of farm implements. And Ward eventually managed to renegotiate the contract with the state. He paid $6,000 a year in exchange to keep all of the profits from the labor of the prisoners, which, as we'll see later, turned out to be something that made him a very wealthy man. Because of this appointment in Frankfurt, for a time Henrietta Wood was actually taken from Lexington to Frankfurt. But in 1855, Zebulon Ward sold Wood to some Lexington slave traders who took her down the Mississippi River for a second time. Uh, This time, her destination was not New Orleans, but instead Natchez, Mississippi, where the infamous Forks of the Road slave market was one of the busiest slave markets anywhere in the world in the mid-1850s. It served cotton planters in the Natchez district, which was the seat of the cotton kingdom, one of the wealthiest cotton-growing regions anywhere in the South at a time when cotton was becoming a linchpin of the American export economy. About one million pounds of cotton had been grown in the United States in 1800, but by 1860, that total was more than one billion pounds. And in 1840, Mississippi was growing about a quarter of all of the cotton grown in the United States, which supplied about two-thirds of the entire global market for cotton. The Natchez district was at the center of that, and that's where Henrietta Wood was taken and sold. If you travel to Natchez today, you can actually go and see the historic site. There's actually plans afoot to do some more and better interpretation of this site. Right now, it sits across from some uh, body shops, and there are just a few placards marching the place where wood and thousands of other enslaved people would have been brought after long overland treks in coffles or tortuous sails down the Mississippi River on steamboats. The Kentucky slave trading firm of Griffin and Pullum was the firm that actually sold Henrietta Wood to her next purchaser, a man named Gerard Brandon. Brandon was one of the largest and wealthiest slaveholders anywhere in the American South on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, The son of the first governor of Mississippi to be born in the Mississippi Territory, he eventually built uh, on his home plantation, Brandon Hall, on the Natchez Trace Parkway, a sprawling complex of plantations where he enslaved, according to census and other records, close to 800 people in 1860. If you go to Natchez, you can visit today the house that he had built on his plantation uh, that was completed in early 1856, around the time that Henrietta Wood would have arrived there. It's operated today uh, as a bed and breakfast and a boutique wedding venue. Inside the house, there are hardly any indications of uh, what it was that underwrote the wealth of Brandon Hall and of Gerard Brandon in particular, but I did find one spot where there was a cotton bowl testifying to the way that cotton had led to Gerard Brandon's mind-boggling wealth. Henrietta Wood worked for a time, Brandon Hall, uh, in the fields, 
and she remained there until the middle of the Civil War, when in 1863, after the Emancipation Proclamation and the approach of United States troops prompted Gerard Brandon to flee to Texas to evade the effects of the Emancipation Proclamation. He forced some 300 people that he enslaved at the time on a 400-mile march across the state of Louisiana into Robertson County, Texas, and Henrietta Wood was among the marchers. She arrived in Robertson County in 1863, where Brandon uh, rented a plantation and resumed growing cotton, intent on remaining there for the remainder of the war. And because of his successful flight, uh, and I think uh, this is significant for our earlier conversation about the freedom narrative and how emancipation came, although you know U.S. troops came to Natchez in 1863 and freed thousands of people in the Natchez district, Wood was not there to see that. She had been taken to Texas where she remained in bondage until, as she later said, three years after the Emancipation Proclamation. That is, until 1866, uh, well after the Confederate surrender at Appomattox, even well after Juneteenth, traditionally remembered as the date when freedom came to Texas. But Henrietta Wood's story did not end there. In 1866, she did return to Natchez, and after a few years of continuing to work for the Brandon family and never being paid, she did save up about $25 by raising chickens and livestock of her own for sale in Natchez's markets, and she used that money to fund a steamboat ticket back up the Mississippi River to the Cincinnati area where she arrived at a waterfront that had been dramatically transformed in the 17 years since she had been ferried across it in a curtained carriage and deprived of her sweet taste of liberty. In 1869, she managed to make it to Covington, and the following year, in 1870, she filed a lawsuit in a Cincinnati court against none other than Zebulon Ward the powerful one-time keeper of the Kentucky Penitentiary who had kidnapped her in 1853. You can see in the case file of that lawsuit, uh, which sits in a National Archives in Chicago today, the documents where she left her legal mark. Uh, There's no evidence that Henrietta Wood ever learned to read or to write, having been deprived of an education by the laws of slavery, but she signaled with her mark on these affidavits, her determination to hold Zebulon Ward to account for what he had done. And she sued him for $20,000, claiming that she was due that not only for the damages of her kidnapping, but also for the long uh, period in which she had been denied wages due to her re-enslavement. What's most remarkable to me as I was researching this story and ultimately uh, led me to think that uh, this was a book to, to write was the surprising outcome of this lawsuit. After a long period of litigation that uh, went on for eight years, in 1878, an all-white jury in a federal courtroom in Cincinnati ruled in favor of Henrietta Wood in her lawsuit against Zebulon Ward. And 25 years after her kidnapping and re-enslavement, this twice-enslaved, twice-emancipated woman won a judgment against Zebulon Ward. 
Now, they didn't award her everything she had asked. Remember, I said she sued for $20,000. She received only a fraction of that amount, $2,500. Nonetheless, that $2,500 is the largest known sum of restitution ever awarded by a U.S. court to a formerly enslaved person in restitution for slavery. So I asked you to think at the beginning of my talk a little bit about the freedom narrative. And what I'd like to pose to you now is sort of the question of what to make of Henrietta Wood's harrowing life, her tortuous path from slavery to freedom and then back to slavery and back to freedom. Is this a story that illustrates freedom as the central narrative of the Civil War era? Or is it a story that illustrates the embattled coming of freedom in the Civil War era? Now, as you think about that story, and maybe before you come to a final conclusion in your own mind, let me just briefly tell you what happened after Wood's dramatic and miraculous legal victory. And first, I'll tell you a little bit about Zebulon Ward, the man whom she defeated. After Ward had sold Wood down to Natchez, Mississippi, he continued making a fortune as the keeper of the state penitentiary in Frankfurt until his retirement in 1859. After only a few years of working in Frankfurt, he had managed to make a fortune estimated at fifty to $75,000. And he took that fortune and retired to an estate just outside of Versailles, Kentucky, in the bluegrass country, Ward Villa. Actually, just down the, the pike from uh, the much more famous farm, Woodburn, of R.A. Alexander, who is, of course, uh, one of the most influential breeders of thoroughbred horses in the 19th century, the owner of the, the great champion Lexington, uh, who was the stud for, uh, I think, 69 of the first 70 winners of the Kentucky Derby. And Zebulon Ward also took up thoroughbred horse racing. He was part of the circle of wealthy white Kentuckians who laid the groundwork for Kentucky's horse racing culture. Eventually, though, he returned to his first career, keeping penitentiaries. In Tennessee, he leased the state penitentiary in the aftermath of the Civil War, where many of his prisoners were recently freed slaves caught up in the dragnet of unequally applied laws that allowed him to exploit their labor even after emancipation. And then later in the 1870s, in the middle of his lawsuit with Wood, he moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, and leased the state penitentiary of Arkansas and made another fortune off of the labor of predominantly African-American prisoners in the state penitentiary. His life ended there in Little Rock. He left behind an estate worth some $600,000 to his family, which uh, tells you what all of his investments in thoroughbred horses and penitentiary labor had netted him. In today's currency, he would be a multimillionaire. And in fact, he became a very influential man in Little Rock. His name is still displayed on buildings there in the city. The painting that you saw earlier hung for a time uh, in the Arkansas state capitol. And of course, the convict leasing system that Zebulon Ward was one of the pioneers of in the antebellum South spread to almost every state 
in the American South after the Civil War, including my home state in Texas. And recently, just outside of where I live in Houston, in Sugarland, Texas, you may have read some of the national press about the discovery of 95 bodies of African-American prisoners uh, discovered in unmarked graves on a school construction site in Sugarland, which was a reminder uh, from below the surface of the impact that convict leasing had across the South and in the Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction eras. It was a system, a brutal system, that the historian Douglas Blackman has referred to as slavery by another name. That's Zebulon Ward's epilogue, but what about Henrietta Wood? What happened to her after she won $2,500 from Zebulon Ward? Well, she decided to move to Chicago along with her son, a man named Arthur H. Sims, who had actually been born in Natchez, Mississippi at Brandon Hall after Wood's sale and enslavement there. Arthur H. Sims in Chicago eventually purchased a house in Hyde Park, very near the campus today of the University of Chicago. My research suggests that he purchased the house outright for about $1,200, a significant sum at that time. Home ownership rates were very low for wage-earning families in Chicago in the late 19th century, a city that was just beginning to rebuild from the Great Fire. They were especially low for African Americans. It would have been very difficult for anyone to purchase a house without a loan from friends or family members. So it seems to me extremely possible that his mother's victory, the money that she had won just a few years before in Cincinnati from Zebulon Ward, helped him to fund the purchase of this house. That house became a fruitful asset for Sims. He took out several mortgages. Property values rose as the World's Fair came to Chicago in the 1890s. And Sims was able to use uh, that capital to fund a legal education. He decided to go to law school at the Union College of Law, which is now the Northwestern University School of Law. And in 1889, he became one of the first African-American graduates of Northwestern's School of Law. He continued to practice law on the south side of Chicago into his 90s. There was an article that was published in the Chicago Tribune, as you can see here, in 1948, that actually referred to his birth on a plantation outside of Natchez and talked about his mother, who was referred to as the laundress. He was still practicing law at 92 in 1948, when he died in 1951, Sims left behind a large clan of professionals, doctors, librarians. Uh, one of his grandsons went on to become a Tuskegee Airman, and a lot of that success came from the money that had been put into this house that funded his legal education so many years before. By coincidence, in 1951, not long after Sims died, the case file of his mother's lawsuit against Zebulon Ward was actually relocated from Cincinnati to the National Archives in Chicago, which is where I found it in the fall of 2015. At the time, I was just beginning my research on the book, and there was still a lot that I wanted to learn. So you can imagine my excitement when the archivists were able to bring this file from the stacks. Inside, the case file was bursting with clues about Henrietta Wood's story. It included the verdict slip on which the jurors had written 
their historic decision for Henrietta Wood, an image of which is on the cover of my book. And most significantly, it contained documentation proving that Zebulon Ward had, in fact, paid the money that the jury ordered him to pay. And so that set the groundwork for understanding what happened with Henrietta Wood and her son after her victory. When I saw this case file and I was going through it, I told the archivist there at the time a little bit about her story, about how she had been born enslaved, how she had been freed before the Civil War, how she had been kidnapped and re-enslaved, how she had been taken to Natchez and then to Texas during the Civil War, managed somehow to return back up the river to Cincinnati and file a lawsuit against the man who had kidnapped her. And as he listened to the story, uh, the archivist in the end had only one question for me. Did she win? That's the question that I leave for you to consider. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. So we've got about 10 minutes for us to ask questions. I'll bring the mic around and we can ask. Two quick questions. How did she spend the time between filing her lawsuit in 1870 and the victory in 1878? And the other question is, what was her life like in Chicago when she went to Chicago? Can you tell us any more about that until she died in 1912? Great questions. So when she returned to the Covington, Cincinnati area, she was part of the migration of many African-Americans to river cities in the Ohio Valley at that time who came to the city seeking employment, seeking a better life for themselves and their family. What they found was not a promised land by any means. And in fact, the labor market that Henrietta Wood entered in the 1870s confined African-American women largely to the same kinds of jobs that they had done even before emancipation. Domestic work, laundry, cooking, cleaning. So the same kinds of things that Wood had done in William Sirode's house while enslaved in New Orleans, that she had done at the Louisville Hotel while being hired out in Kentucky, that she did in the boarding houses in Cincinnati during her Sweet Taste of Liberty. She was likely doing the same kind of work in the 1870s. Probably when she ended up in Chicago, she continued doing that kind of work. But the question you ask is, is uh, one that I wish I had more answers about. In the book, I talk about the sources that I draw on to write the book. We're fortunate in Wood's case to actually have, in addition to the case file, two interviews that she gave with newspaper reporters in the 1870s. Uh, one of them was actually published in 1879 in the Ripley, Ohio Bee, a very small town newspaper. And the other was published in 1876 in the Cincinnati Commercial by a journalist named uh, Lafcadio Hearn. Lafcadio Hearn actually later became sort of a literary celebrity in his own right. He eventually moved to Japan and publishing under another name there. Uh, he became sort of a household name as a collector of Japanese folktales and ghost stories. Uh, he's sort of the Edgar Allan Poe of Japanese literature, but he, he got his start as a newspaper reporter in Cincinnati, where his beat was actually to go to neighborhoods that most respectable white journalists did not go into along the river. And in fact, a lot of the evidence we have about African-American communities 
in Reconstruction Cincinnati come from Hearn's sort of ethnographic interviews and studies of the community where uh, Henrietta Wood lived. And so that's one of the things she did in that period in 1876 is she gave this lengthy interview to Lafcadio Hearn. But as I mentioned, the second of those two interviews was in 1879. And in fact, that interview was conducted before she even knew whether she was getting the money from Zebulon Ward. At the end of it, she said she was still waiting for Ward to pass over them checks, as she put it. And so the last testimony we have from her is in 1879. We know that she moves to Chicago because she shows up in census records in Arthur Sims's household, you know, but it's difficult to sort of piece together what she was doing during all that time. Um, we, can, we can know that because she lived to 1912, though, she did live to see her son begin his legal career. She held two grandchildren born in, in freedom to Arthur Sims. She witnessed one of those grandchildren getting married early in 1912 in Sims's home before she died. Uh, so we can kind of piece together and imagine, you know, what that experience would have been like, but unfortunately we don't have as much evidence about that period as we do about the earlier. Not that I have, not that I have been able to find, unfortunately. I, I have been, the question was, did Sims write any memoirs about his career or, or any illegal papers? I, I was fortunate to meet some of his descendants who did have some family papers that were very helpful to my research, but as far as you can tell, not a lot of uh, autobiographical writings or, or letters. The question was, uh, did she ever marry? And that is another question that's difficult to know the answer to for certain. Of course, when she was enslaved, the laws at the time would not have recognized as legitimate or official any marriage relationship she may have entered into with another enslaved man. And so, you know, doing the history of marriage, Tara Hunter has a great book, Bound in Wedlock, that sort of explores these, these source problems, and she's managed to find ways using pension records after the Civil War to try to reconstruct those relationships. But in Wood's case, none of those uh, efforts turned up strong evidence. It's not something she brought up in either of her interviews, or at least it's not something that either of the interviewers thought to record, and so it's kind of one of those mysteries, and there are others that remain, even despite the fact that we have, uh, you know, a, a really extraordinary amount to reconstruct her story. There are some things that, that we don't know for certain. I was wondering what started your research on this. Was it because of the settlement with Ward? Is that what started the journey on the research? So actually, the, what started me on the, the journey was I was doing research, as I said, I'm from Texas, and I was doing research on the phenomenon of enslaved people being brought to Texas during the Civil War by Confederate planters on the run. We know just from some sort of statistical estimates that maybe as many as 150,000 people were trafficked and marched into Texas during the Civil War to evade the Emancipation Proclamation. But we don't know as much as I think historians would like to know about what their experience was like when they were in Texas. And so I was doing research on that when a colleague, uh, Richard Blackett at Vanderbilt University, who knew I was doing that research, ran across in another setting this Ripley B article about Henrietta Wood's story. 
that included her being brought to Texas by Gerard Brandon during the Civil War. But it also hinted at this lawsuit that she had just won. And so that's what got me down the path of seeing how much I could find about that lawsuit. And ultimately, that became the story that I wanted to tell. Great, great question. So the question was referring to the fact that in the 20th century, we know that redlining and other forms of housing discrimination prevented uh, African Americans in, in many northern cities, and particularly in Chicago, from obtaining access to fair credit, right? Uh, they were sold houses on contract. They were trapped in all kinds of legal tricks. You know, their property was assessed in a devalued and depressed way. Banks were discouraged from lending to African-American home buyers in the very neighborhoods where Arthur H. Sims and his family lived on the south side. If you, if you can go today and find one of the houses that Sims lived in at the end of his life is still standing there today, and it's very close to Washington Park. If you were to look at a red-lined map of Chicago in the uh, 1940s and 1950s, it's right in the center of that redlining. He purchased his house, though, in the 1880s. So this was long before the, the New Deal and the, the uh, uh, policies that kind of encouraged redlining and some of those discriminatory practices, which isn't to say that you wouldn't have faced difficulties purchasing a home in Chicago at that time, but the difficulties were, were primarily getting together the capital to purchase the house. And there was less of a, a disparity than there would be later. Although, as I, I said earlier, a very small percentage of African-Americans purchased homes in Chicago in that period. But, you know, the vast majority of any wage-earning family weren't purchasing homes at that period either. So I think in some ways, you know, what you point to later, and something I was very interested in in the, in the book, is thinking about the difference that restitution made in the life of Henrietta Wood and, and her descendants. In a sense, this is a story of what might have been or sort of the path not taken. You know, had families like his and hers received capital at the outset that they could use to invest in real estate and then to pass on that heritable wealth to descendants, use it to access credit, which again, the mortgages would have been in the late 19th century before what you read about in, in The Color of, of Money, you know, it kind of shows the difference that that made, even a small amount of money made in his life compared to what would come later uh, with redlining and, and all the other uh, forms of Jim Crow dis discrimination and segregation that followed. Thank you all, and thank Dr. McDaniel again. Thank you. That's it for episode 13 of Read Succeed. Join us next episode as we review the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall and the Mind of America by Greg Grandin. This is Read Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.